0: This uh, week will mark four years um, since I officially stepped into uh, the role of senior pastor here at uh, EBC, and and, you know, in some ways it's kind of hard to believe it's been that long already, Um, but I thought I would maybe celebrate this morning attempt to show my growth as a pastor over these last four years by preaching through an entire book in the Bible in one sitting. (laughs) figure we don't have anywhere to be this afternoon or this evening, right? So so why not give that a go? Um, And I kid, uh, but only partly, because we are actually going to preach through an entire book this morning, but that book is only 25 verses long, so I'm still going to count it but you don't have to suffer through hours and hours and hours of preaching on end. So in the, the series that we've uh, sermon series we've been in, we've spent the last 4 weeks looking at Paul's letter to Titus. And and in our in our time we've looked at how God's power by way of the gospel message transforms us. Um, it transforms church leaders, it transforms church bodies, it transforms households, transforms how we live our daily lives. And the reason that I've tagged the book of Philemon along with Titus in this series is, is because I, I think, verse for verse, Paul's letter to Philemon perhaps packs the biggest punch when it comes to gospel transformation. In, in one short letter, as we're going to see this morning, we get three powerful examples of gospel transformation. We're going to see the power of God to utterly transform relationships from the perspective of three different individuals. So, so if you've ever been frustrated in your life by the continual rejection of the gospel, by someone in your life, then today is for you. Or if you've ever deeply wronged, uh, been deeply wronged by someone in your life and struggled to find true forgiveness, then today is also for you. And if you've ever wronged someone and had to humbly seek forgiveness and mercy from them, then today is for you also. We're gonna see the gospel playing itself out in all three of those scenarios this morning through three different people. So I'm telling you, Philemon, the book of Philemon is only 25 verses long, but, but man, it's a, a short letter that speaks so strongly about all of those things. So let's begin um, this morning in verse 1 and, and begin with Paul's introductory remarks in his letter. So I'll read verse 1 down through verse 7. and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So just a little bit of background. I said there's, there's three main characters in this letter, so I want to give just a few details about each of them so that we're kind of up to speed as we, as we read through the rest of the letter. Um, the first character is Paul. Uh, we're, we're probably most familiar with Paul, so I don't need to say too many things about him. Um, as far as, well, Paul says in uh, verse 9, he, he refers to himself as an old man, Most scholars would say he's around 60 years old when he wrote this letter, so whether or not you and I think 60 is old, Paul called himself an old man at this point. Um, He's probably about five to seven years from his death, and and of course he wouldn't have known that as he was writing this letter, but that just kind of gives us some perspective on where he's at in his life. Um, and, And kind of just as a piece of trivia, Paul probably wrote this letter to Philemon at the same time that he wrote the letter, uh, the book we have in our Bibles, Colossians, the letter to the church in Colossae, which takes us to character number two, who is Philemon himself. Philemon seems to have lived in Colossae, and, and it was in his home that at least part of the church would gather together, if not the whole church in Colossae at that time. So it probably means that Philemon was fairly well off, well-off enough that he had a house big enough to, to hold the church, as they would gather. Um, we kind of get some of the relationship between Paul and Philemon in verses four through seven. We see some of the background of Philemon's life. Um, it really speaks to the ways that the love of Jesus was overflowing from his life. Um, it's clear that, that God had greatly transformed his life. Now, we don't know when, we don't know where, we don't know how, but Paul alludes to the fact that Philemon seems to owe his faith in Jesus to Paul himself. So Paul had a a hand in Philemon coming to Christ, so it, it seems. Whether that was when Paul traveled through Colossae or maybe it was on a business trip nearby where the two ran into each other, we just don't know But the tone of the letter does indicate, uh, and especially when we get to verse 19, we see it, uh, there was a relationship that Paul had with with Philemon, potentially a a, a deep relationship together. And and because Philemon seems to have been financially wealthy, it's it's little surprise that his household contained bond servants, which leads right into our third character in this book, uh, Onesimus, he was a bond servant of Philemon. Uh, we're not really given any background on how that servitude came about. Uh, you know, when we think about slavery in the context of our country's history, we, we think about slavery that is racial in nature. Um, th- that wouldn't have been the case in most of the Roman Empire at that time. And this isn't to condone slavery in any way, but But that just wasn't kind of how it was in Rome. Uh, You know, slavery in Rome didn't really center on a person's race as much as a person's inability to repay a debt, for example, or or a, a sentence that was being carried out for a crime that had been committed. Those that were in bondage were more often in bondage because of those things, not because of who they were as a person, their race. So again, we we don't know the details surrounding Onesimus' bondage, but we do know that he fled from Philemon. He fled from him, and apparently, it seems, robbed Philemon in the process. And again, we're not told the background how or where Onesimus came into contact with Paul, but at some point that happened. That meeting took place, and Onesimus was converted at the hand of Paul's preaching, Onesimus became a follower of Jesus and would go on to serve Jesus by serving Paul. Um, and especially when Paul was in prison, Onesimus served Paul at that time. So, so those are the three characters, the three figures in this story. We, we've got Paul, who, who is the, the grand apostle of the church of Jesus Christ, we've got Philemon, who's a, a well to do leader in the church at Colossae. We've got Onesimus, who was a a runaway bond servant who was transformed by the gospel. So with that being said, let's let's move past the introductory remarks and kind of get into the meat of the letter. And first, we're going to focus on Paul. We're going to focus on the appeal that Paul is making to Philemon. So follow along with me at verse 8. Paul says, Accordingly, Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me, in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. So at this point, at this point in Paul's life, his reputation as, as an apostle of, of Jesus Christ, as a planter of churches, was, was probably well established. It had, it had been roughly 25 years at this point since his uh, powerful conversion on the road to Damascus. 25 years, and, and, and in that time, Paul had traveled on numerous missionary journeys around the Roman world, planting churches in all kinds of different towns and cities, um, Paul has proven himself theologically by going toe-to-toe with, uh, with false apostles who were preaching disp- uh, different Gospels than the true Gospel. And along with Paul's reputation probably came quite a bit of influence, probably had power associated with that. I, I imagine that Paul's words carried weight in ways that differed from most other people. But yet we get the sense especially in verses eight and nine and ten that that uh, paul's not utilizing that influence in order to strong arm Philemon into acting a certain way right he's not he's not forcing Philemon to for to to work in a certain way he could have commanded Philemon to do so Paul probably could have presented an ironclad theological case about why Philemon ought to do something. Paul even says, I could have just kept Onesimus. He's useful to me. He's, he's ministering to me while I'm in prison. Paul could have just kept him and sort of kind of indirectly forced Philemon to, you know, to respond in a certain way by allowing Onesimus to be there. But Paul didn't do any of those things. He didn't do any of those things. Rather than, than force the gospel to be lived out in Philemon's life, Paul appealed to him. He humbly appealed to Philemon in love. And so I would argue that, that Paul kind of released his grip on the situation. He released his grip and, and surrendered control over to God. He, he trusted that God would continue to work in Philemon's heart and life and so lead to the kind of response that Paul desired from him. And you kind of think about that principle, and you know, as I reflect on that, that's a principle that's so much easier said than done, isn't it? To to let things go, to give them over to God. That's at least the my experience in that area, and I would I would assume for many of us that's the experience as well. Um, I, you know, I'm the kind of person who would who would default to trying to force gospel transformation to take place, or, or, or I don't know if manipulates the word, but in, in a good way, manipulate gospel transformation to take place. You know, if I can just work the situation correctly, or do things correctly, or, or, or with my own kids, if I can just discipline them correctly, or teach them in just the right way, then, then the gospel will take root, and transformation will occur but it doesn't work that way. Does it? We can't we can't force that. Can we? We can't force anyone in our lives, no matter how close we are to them, to receive the gospel message and to respond to it in a positive way. Now we would like to, right? I mean, if we're honest, we would like to. We would like to be able to make that happen you know, how much simpler it would be if I can just make a person believe the truth of the gospel, the truth that I know they're searching for anyway, even if they don't realize it at the moment. Now, man, I I can, I should pray for that person. I should pray that, that God would soften their heart. I can and should persist in sharing the gospel with that person, sharing through words, sharing through deeds, um, I, I can and should stand unwaveringly upon the truth of the gospel message, but I cannot force anyone to accept it. I cannot force anyone to believe it. None of us can. can we? we might want to. We might prefer to. At times, I might even convince myself that I can make it happen, but, but we can't. God, God, has, God has created us as human beings to have a will, and, and to be able to make decisions, and, and he's not looking for pre-programmed robots that, that just have no choice but to submit to him. He gives us choice. He gives us choice to either uh, accept his love or, or reject his love, and you see, I mean, we see this in our life. We see this in our day-to-day life, but we see this reality at play all throughout the Bible, as well. All over the place. Uh, Adam and Eve, you can go all the way back to the beginning. Adam and Eve freely chose to reject God in the Garden of Eden. You can go to Exodus. God, God powerfully brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. He provided for their needs in miraculous ways, and yet they chose to turn towards idols and turn towards false gods instead of surrendering themselves fully to him. Uh, you can look at the, the kings of Israel. These kings had all kinds of prophets who would speak God's truth and God's words to them, and yet so many of Israel's kings chose to turn to idol worship. Uh, you can go to the New Testament. Jesus sent out his, uh, his followers two by two to proclaim the good news, and he told them that some would reject the message that they were taking. Uh, you can go to John chapter 6, and, and in that chapter, Jesus speaks so clearly about, about his identity as the bread of life that has come down from heaven. He, he said that eternal life is only found in him, and, and yet you get to the end of the chapter, and many decide, no, we we, we don't want that. We're, we're going to turn back. We're not going to follow Jesus anymore. You get to 2 Peter chapter 3 and, and we read that God is patient. He doesn't want any to perish. But all to come to repentance, but yet we know that there continues to be those who reject God, those who reject his love, his mercy. And I, I mean, we can probably all think of someone in our life who, who if we could just snap our fingers and, and make them believe the gospel, we would. We would do it. We wouldn't even have to think twice about it, but we can't, can we? We can't can't do that. That's not how we've been created as humans. And so I, I would encourage you to, to picture that person. Picture that, that, that one person in your life who, who you just so desperately desire to come to know Jesus, whether that's somebody that you've known for decades and decades, or, or maybe somebody that you've, you've just met recently. Um, picture them In your minds, and and odds are you're picturing them because you have a relationship with them. You care about them. You want what's best for them. Now, now as you as you have uh, their image, their picture in your mind, let's ask ourselves: Have I have I ever pressed them? Have ever have I tried pressuring them to accept the gospel message? Have I forced it? on them. And, and, and I don't want to confuse pressing the gospel with being bold with the gospel. I think those are two, two very different things. We ought to be bold with the gospel. We shouldn't be ashamed. It's the power of God for salvation. So we, we, we ought to be bold. But have we gone to the strategy of of pressing and pressuring and, and almost forcing the gospel, forcing that person into a, dis, into a decision? and and if so i i would encourage us to really consider the uh the the approach of paul here with philemon he he doesn't leave philemon no choice but to receive onesimus back as a free person he 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 lovingly appeals to philemon he lovingly appeals to philemon to consider god's love in the matter so the message of the gospel has never been, it's never been one of coercion. That, that, that's just not the gospel message. Instead, it's a message of love. It's a message of love available for all to freely accept. And so we should be bold in declaring it, proclaiming it, but we have to also recognize we can't force the gospel into anyone's heart. And we might even find that the more that we force it, the harder the heart can become. So I would just encourage us to consider Paul's Paul's approach here, lovingly appealing to the gospel. Well, let's move on to the second character in the story, Philemon himself. Uh, let's pick it up in verse 15. And again, Paul writing to Philemon says, For this perhaps is why he, why Onesimus, was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bond servant, but more than a bond servant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. So we, we really get the direct appeal that Paul is making here, this appeal to Philemon to forgive Onesimus, to, to receive him back as a brother in Christ. When you, when you read some of the history about, uh, about the, the Roman culture at that time, it's commonly taught that, that uh, a slave owner was given the freedom to punish an escaped slave in whatever way they saw fit, really no questions asked. They were allowed to do whatever, and, and in fact, uh, it came across um, a story from right about the same time as as this letter to Philemon, um, a story where uh, there was this instance where a, a single slave killed a slave owner, and the response was to have that person, along with all 400 of his fellow bond servants, put to death. I mean, that was the response to that Ooh. one action, was for 400 people to die. So we can see that, that, that a harsh slave owner could easily do whatever they wanted to a, a runaway servant that had, had been returned to them. So, so it's precisely at this point where, where Philemon has to decide just what forgiveness, the forgiveness of God means to him. Would he show Onesimus the same kind of forgiveness which God had shown to him? In his life. And and it this question it didn't just impact his own life or his own household, but probably the entire church in Colossae, because remember, he was a leader in the church. And so how Philemon responds here is gonna have a ripple effect, I think, within the church in Colossae. Now now, we don't have slaves. We don't have bond servants in our context today, but that does not mean that we are not faced with a similar type of situation, and probably on a regular basis even. You know, anytime anyone wrongs us in any way, we face the same type of situation. Will I, will I extend the same forgiveness that Jesus Christ extended to me? And, and that was a topic that Jesus spoke about regularly in his ministry uh, you know he told the parable of the unmerciful servant that we read earlier this morning you know, one servant who'd been forgiven a fortune and we kind of we kind of in that story because it's talents and denarii we kind of miss the shock of it but the first servant owed billions with a b billions that I don't know how you rack up a debt that big but billions and the second servant owed him a significant amount, thousands, but still compared to billions. I mean, it's crazy, right? And, and so we get this story. Jesus talks about forgiveness, and that parable was actually preceded by Peter asking, well, how many times do I have to forgive my brother, Jesus? My brother keeps sinning against me. How many times do I need to forgive him? And then Jesus went into that parable. Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount that if we refuse to forgive others, we can expect God the Father to refuse to forgive us. He told the parable of the prodigal son. And in that story, we are, we are directly confronted with a father who generously forgives and an older brother who refuses to forgive. And those are just a few examples. We, we, see, it, we see it permeating the ministry of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus. And so as people who have accepted the gospel, we, we cannot forget the forgiveness that we've been shown cannot forget our prior situation. I mean, we we talked last week from Titus 3 that Paul encouraged the people to remember that they were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and desires. In essence, we have wronged God. We all have wronged God, and because of that reality, God could have rightly and justly condemned us in our sins. Would have had every reason that he could have done that. But we know that even though we were guilty as sinners, that he chose to die on the cross for us. And that is the message of the gospel. God offers us forgiveness in response to our wrongs. So we can't forget that for ourselves, but we can't forget that when someone else wrongs us. You know, if we're going to be people who proclaim a message of divine forgiveness to the world, then we have to be people that extend that forgiveness to others. I mean, it just has to be. We can't proclaim the message and then not live it out. There's a clash there that anybody would see right through. So I I guess a good question maybe for us to ask is, who is the Onesimus in our lives? Who's that person that, that has wronged us? Who's that person that we have to answer that question? Am I going to forgive them? in accordance with the forgiveness that I've been shown in Jesus Christ. And Onesimus is, as we said, the last character of our story, and he's the one, of course, on the other side of this forgiveness decision. So look with me at verse 18. Let's focus on Onesimus. If he, if Onesimus, has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Now, when Paul says that if Onesimus has wronged you or owes you anything— I think we can say with confidence that, that in Philemon's eyes, Onesimus has wronged him and does owe him something. According to Philemon, Onesimus is guilty. Can you imagine being Onesimus in this situation, being in his shoes? What must he have been feeling on his trip back to Philemon? What questions are, are, are going through his head? And, and if you think about it, um, Onesimus has had his life completely transformed. He, is, he has come to believe the message of the gospel. He's a Christian now, and in many ways, he has been set free. And, and yet, whether it's at Paul's urging or, or uh, his own desire, Onesimus finds himself on his way back to Philemon to seek reconciliation what's going to happen when he gets there? How's Philemon going to receive him? Is Philemon going to punish him severely for what he's done? Maybe even kill him? Or is Philemon going to receive him back as a brother in Christ rather than a runaway bond servant? I mean, according to the law of that time, Onesimus was guilty, and, and he was in need of mercy, according to the, how things were set up. But aren't we all, right? Aren't we all guilty according to the law and in need of mercy? We're all guilty of wrongdoing, and not just against other people, but against God. We're, we're guilty of wrongdoing against God himself. I don't like to think of myself in that manner. I don't know that any of us like to think of ourselves that way. But it's true. I mean, It's true. All have sinned. All have fallen short of God's glory, and all means I. I've sinned. I've fallen short of God's glory. And, and so I guess the question is, once we, once we realize our guilt, then will we repent? Will we seek forgiveness from God? Upon hearing the gospel message and understanding that Jesus died on the cross for my own sins, will I accept that reality? Will I seek the forgiveness that God offers? And, and not just a one-time not just a one-time deal. It's not just a one-time repentance, seeking forgiveness, but an attitude that that, that I ought to maintain throughout my whole life. Anytime I come to see life, uh, see sin in my life, am I, am I repenting and seeking forgiveness? That can be difficult, isn't it? I mean, it requires owning up to my wrongdoing. It requires humility to admit that I act wrongly. It requires throwing myself completely at the feet of God um, and accepting whatever his response will be to me. But what's great is there's a great parallel here. We we can come to God with confidence in that situation, just like Onesimus can come back to Philemon in confidence. I mean, what does Paul say here, Verse, uh, verse 18, right? If Onesimus has wronged you at all, if he owes you anything, Philemon, I, Paul, am going to pay it back. I've I've covered Onesimus' wrongdoing, essentially, is what Paul is saying there. And Paul wrote, Paul, you know, gave his promise with his own hand. He wrote the letter. But we think about our situation before God when we come to him as those who've sinned and seek forgiveness. Jesus has done the same kind of thing, but didn't write a letter with his hand. I mean, he validated it with his life on the cross. And basically said, if Aaron owes you anything, I will pay it back. I've covered that debt. I mean, what a, what a powerful picture, parallel we get here. And, and Paul was confident of Philemon's response in this matter with Onesimus. He was confident that Philemon would respond in love and in forgiveness. And we can have that same kind of confidence with God as well. Now, it does require us seeking forgiveness from him. Remember what we talked about? It's not being forced on anybody. The gospel is not forced into a person's heart. But we can know that, that he will respond with mercy and forgiveness when we seek it from him. Jesus has said, I will pay it. I have paid it. The debt is fully covered. And so we can have confidence in that. And there's still a few verses kind of, of a final greeting this morning that, that we're not going to focus on specifically, but but when we read this letter from Paul to Philemon, we're kind of left hanging at the end. That's really the end of the story right there. So if you're not a person that likes stories that aren't all, you know, kind of wrapped up with a bow at the end, we'll have to apologize this morning, because that's how this is left. Uh, we're not told if Paul's appeal to Philemon was responded to positively. We're not told. We're not told if Philemon received Onesimus back as a brother or not. We're not told if Onesimus was received back with open arms, if he found that forgiveness from Philemon or not. We're, <laughs> we're just not told. And, and in some ways, I'm one of those kind of people, I like that ending. In some ways, I like it that it's left hanging in that way. And I like it especially because when we put ourselves into the story, whether it's Paul's shoes or Philemon's or, or Onesimus, when we put ourselves into that story, we kind of we can realize that the story's not over yet regarding the same situations in which we find ourselves. The story's not over yet. Our, our, when, when we present the gospel to someone in our life, are we going to do it in a heavy-handed manner that kind of forces it upon them? Or will will I make my appeal in love? You know, well, the story's not over yet, right? We think about uh, Philemon, you know. Are, are we going to offer forgiveness to the one who has wronged us in line with the forgiveness we've received from God? Well, the story's not over yet. And, and with Onesimus, you know, are we going to repent? Are we going to seek forgiveness from God whom we have wronged trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross. And same thing, the story's not over yet, still being written. And so I would say Paul's letter to Philemon here is is filled with wonderful possibilities regarding God's work within us, wonderful possibilities regarding that work. It, It presents wonderful possibilities regarding our relationships with God and also with one another. But in order for those possibilities to become realities, we have to yield ourselves to that powerful work of God. We have to yield ourselves to the message of the gospel through which God does that work within us. And as we do, as we yield ourselves, then I, I have faith that those possibilities will come will become realities in our lives. I have confidence that, that God's power, by the way of the gospel, won't just transform our relationship with him, but with all the other relationships we have in our lives as well. That we'll see the gospel being lived out. I'm telling you, it's the, the book of Philemon. It's such a short letter, but man, there's some powerful pictures there about, about how God works in his people, through the message of the gospel. So I would encourage each one of us to, you know, and maybe we see ourselves in all three of those characters this morning, but, but to really focus on one in the coming days and say, man, what, what can I take from, from where I'm at, the situation that I'm in, and what God can do in and through me by way of the gospel? Something for us to think about as we reflect on this letter to Philemon going forward. Would you stand with me let's close in prayer and 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 finish our our, our sermon this morning but also this this uh, series that we've been in giving thanks for god 's work giving thanks for the gospel message heavenly father we, we come to you and um, I just thank you for these these pictures of gospel transformation that uh, that we see in this letter to Philemon, we thank you that these aren 't just pictures from two thousand years ago, but but that you continue to work in us and through us in uh, in these same ways today. The specific details might be a little different but but the general situations are exactly the same, and so God, my prayer for myself and, and for all of us here is that that your work within us would, would transform our relationships, that it would first and foremost transform our relationship with you, that we would receive you as our Lord, receive you as our Savior, that each and every day we would walk in step with you more and more, that our relationship with you would deepen, that we would we would feel the comfort to share anything and everything with you that we would desire to see you work in powerful ways through us and God I pray that uh, our relationships with one another would be transformed as well that we wouldn't just be people who can speak the gospel and who believe the gospel but who live out the message of the gospel who live out especially the forgiveness that is found in you. And we know that's difficult. We can probably, all of us, think of situations where it is hard to extend forgiveness or even to ask for forgiveness. God, but I pray that we would more and more be people who are, who are transformed daily by you, that we would be people marked by the forgiveness that we've received And that we offer. And I'm convinced that that can change everything. God, that can change every relationship in our lives. And so I pray that you would help us to trust you in that. Even when we don't feel like offering forgiveness. Even when we have lots of questions. God, may we trust you in it. May we walk in step with who you are leading us to be who you are transforming us to be in you. We thank you for your sacrifice. We know that without that, without that, it's nothing. Without that, we have nothing. And so we give you praise for that. This morning, God, and as we spend this week focused on thankfulness, may that be 1A on our list, that we are thankful for you and your love for us. God, it's in your name that we pray this morning. Amen.